The Guardian. Welcome to Science Weekly. Alongside our regular non-COVID episode, we're continuing to explore the science behind the outbreak, delving into some of the issues it's raised. As always, do keep sending in your questions. Head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, all in one word. In today's episode, we're looking at something that hopefully those of us living in northern latitudes will be getting more of as we head into the summer months. Vitamin D. We're asking what role it might play in COVID-19 infections. To find out more about vitamin D, I spoke to Susan lanham New, Professor of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Surrey. It's a very unusual nutrient and it is the only nutrient where your main source is from UVB exposure. I'm Sarah Bosley, Health Editor of The Guardian, and this is Science Weekly. Hi, Sue. How are you? Good afternoon, Sarah. My son has allowed me to use his super duper microphone. So (laughs) Um, I hope it's coming across clearly. Are you social isolating and are you working from home? I am indeed. I'm working from home with a family of two teenagers, a boy and a girl and and a wonderful husband. So we're all trying to make it work on the internet and helping, you know, all our neighbours and doing our NHS volunteering at the weekends. So we're, you know, doing all we can and we're very, very lucky to be able to teach and do our research from home. Oh, that's great. So Sue, before we get into the links between vitamin D deficiency and the severity of COVID-19 infections, can we start with how we actually get vitamin D into our bodies? It's usually from exposure to sunlight, isn't it? So what happens from there? It's a very unusual nutrient. And indeed, if we begin at the beginning, vitamin D is not what we would call a vital amine. We used to have the E on the end, so vitamins were always known as vitamins, actually. And vitamin D is very unusual. It is the only nutrient in the broad spectrum of all the macro and micronutrients that we have where your main source is actually exactly as you say from UVB exposure. We do get it in food, but the main source is from sunlight exposure. Now, that sunlight exposure has to be at between 290 and 310 nanometers. So what that means is that we are only of that right wavelength in areas of northern latitude, including, of course, the UK, between March to the end of September. So we make no vitamin D in the winter, but during those spring and summer months, we have what's called 7-dehydrocholesterol. So that is a steroid that sits just under our skin. That is exactly the same in humans as it is in animals. And UVB rays hit onto that skin, and then we start to make vitamin D. And looking at the science of that, we have what we would call a pre-vitamin D, then a temperature-dependent isomerization to make full vitamin D, which is then what we would call hydroxylated in the liver, that then gives us our marker for clinical status, which is 25 OHD or 25 hydroxyvitamin D. So what that means is you can take a blood sample from someone and measure how much vitamin D they have in their blood. 
And the reason that vitamin D is so special is that what happens is you also then have further enzymes that convert 25-hydroxyvitamin D to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. And that is the active hormone of vitamin D. So not only is it a nutrient, but it's also a hormone. Right. So it's absolutely nothing like vitamin C or vitamin B, which we get usually through our food, don't we? This is not really a vitamin at all. Is that right? That is right. So what do our bodies use vitamin D for? Why, in fact, do we make it? Well, the main reason uh, or the main aspect of vitamin D and where most of the evidence um, sits with respect to the importance of vitamin D to health is our musculoskeletal health. So we know that in children who don't have enough vitamin D, they will develop rickets or knock knees, bandy legs, as it's known, where the, the, the bone is very soft because it hasn't been mineralized properly because there isn't enough vitamin D. The adult equivalent of that is osteomalacia. So when the growth plates are fused and we're no longer growing, you can still have a tremendous effect of vitamin D deficiency on your bones, but not where your legs become soft and bandy as they do in childhood rickets, but where you develop a tremendous muscle ache, bone pain, lethargy, fatigue. And there are many people, I'm sorry to say, that particularly during the winter, who actually have mild osteomalacia and don't realise that they have it. So that is on one side. It is also very important in preventing the brittle bone disease osteoporosis, which we can get when we're younger through stress fractures. People don't realize that. They often think osteoporosis is just an older person's condition, but that is not the case. But where vitamin D is also important is in diabetes. So our pancreatic beta cells, so those are the cells in the pancreas that are responsible for producing insulin, they actually need vitamin D to work. And then finally, vitamin D, of course, has a link to immune function. And because we have what are known as vitamin D receptors, and you find those in immune cells, as well as vitamin D metabolic enzymes, that, of course, then provides a very strong scientific rationale for the potential role of vitamin D, you know, in immune homeostasis. Is there any evidence that vitamin D actually helps the immune system in infectious diseases? It's been hypothesized for a very long time that there is an association between seasonal upper respiratory tract infections and low vitamin D status because of course both of those occur in the winter. But The problem that we have is that we just don't have enough randomized controlled trials to really be able to pull that together with, you know, with very strong concrete evidence. But certainly we know that vitamin D inhibits pulmonary um, inflammation responses. So that is there. And interestingly, in populations that have rickets, Um, There is also an association with upper respiratory tract infections. But the jury is still really undecided in terms of the science base at how critical vitamin D is to preventing upper respiratory tract infections. How long do we need to be outside for to make enough of it? 
do we produce more the longer we sit in the sun? The body is extremely clever. And you can never get vitamin D toxicity through being out in UVB exposure, whereas you can from diet. So what you see in, is in terms of having to be in the UV light, about 20 minutes per day would be enough. And that is with about 10% of your body exposed to sunlight. And I think that let's bring that out here too, that it must be a direct effect of UV light onto the skin. So 10% of your body would be your face, your neck, the backs of your hands. If you can expose more, then even better, you know, your arms, your legs, to get that UVB exposure. But of course, we have to advise, as we always would in science, to do that very safely. If you allow your skin in any way to burn, you will, of course, increase the risk of skin cancer. You won't make any more vitamin D because that whole process of that 7G hydrocholesterol cuts off after about 20 to 30 minutes and then it goes to a byproduct. And so no more vitamin D is made for that day after about 20 to 30 minutes. There have been reports in the news recently that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe COVID-19 infections. What do we know about this at the moment? So that rationale of the importance comes back to this vitamin D receptor and vitamin D metabolic enzymes in immune cells. And the link that we've also seen that low vitamin D is associated with an increase in upper respiratory tract infections. So the mechanisms are there. I think we're not there yet with the science. The British Medical Journal paper that I've led on with 21 co-authors was to try to pull together all the current scientific evidence as we have it. And we're now working on a second paper because things are moving so quickly. And as it currently stands, we see no difference in vitamin D status between COVID-19 cases and negative controls. However, there are other studies. So there was a, a very important a study from Indonesia, which showed much lower vitamin D status in those who had severity of COVID-19. What we don't yet have is any vitamin D randomized controlled trials. So I think the message that we need to get out is that we must avoid deficiency in our population. But those calls for high doses of vitamin D are on the basis of mechanisms rather than strong scientific data. Questions have also been raised about whether vitamin D deficiency is also playing a role in the higher rates of mortality from COVID-19 in Black, Asian and ethnic minority groups. And I, I know you've previously studied vitamin D deficiency in Asian women. Are BAME groups at more risk of not getting enough vitamin D? They are, Sarah, and this is something we've been interested in for over 15 years at the University of Surrey with several government grants by the Food Standard Agency and RCUK, looking at particularly South Asians, but we've now got some beginning to get some data on Black Afro-Caribbean and, and Black African women. And our data and those of other groups have shown that vitamin D status is much lower in those groups. So, for example, we ran a study where we measured South Asians 
for their vitamin D status, for their dietary intake every season for one year, and they were below that cut point of 25 nanomoles per litre for their vitamin D status. And if you are below 25 nanomoles per litre, then you would be deemed to be deficient. And in that longitudinal study that we ran on South Asian British women, we found them to be below 25 nanomoles per litre, even in the summer months. What we also find is not only ethnicity is, is a big risk factor, but also so is obesity. People who have a higher body mass index, a higher BMI, actually have lower vitamin D levels. And that is because the vitamin D is stored in fat cells and it makes it metabolically inert. The public health bodies in the UK have now recommended taking vitamin D supplements in addition to their usual guidance that we all take them during the winter months. Should we be trying to increase our vitamin D levels, not least for all the other beneficial effects it has, but just in case it might also help in protecting us from developing a more severe coronavirus infection? Yes, definitely. Up until 2016, the recommendation in the United Kingdom had been zero because it was considered by scientists that we made enough during the summer to last us during the winter. And that has been born to be not the scientific case that actually no matter how much you make in the summer, it will drop in the winter. And the new recommendation for vitamin D in the United Kingdom is 10 micrograms per day or 400 international units. One microgram equals 40 international units. But for most people who are getting out in the sunlight between April and September, it's unlikely that they will need a vitamin D supplement. And what about megadoses? Because there have been suggestions, I think it's probably on social media as much as anything else, that this might be a good thing. What do you say about that? As it currently stands, megadosing, there isn't the scientific base for that. And I think the other really important point, Sarah, is that vitamin D is fat soluble. It's stored in the liver. And so we have to be mindful of that when we're taking very high vitamin D levels, that actually we could be doing harm. All of this sounds like a very good excuse to try and get out into the sunshine as much as we can. It is. I mean, why buy a supplement when you can get it for free? You know, UV exposure doesn't cost anything. And the human body is so very clever you know, at how it makes vitamin D. And as long as it's done safely, you don't allow the skin to burn, you know, then that is very beneficial. Thanks, Sue. Really great to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Susan. And also thank you for your support as listeners. At The Guardian, we believe that open journalism can connect us and bring us together when we need it the most. By supporting us, you can help make sure that our journalism stays open during this crisis and beyond. Visit gu.com forward slash support podcasts. Stay safe and see you back here soon. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.